You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks. And I've got to ask you, have you ever picked your feet in Poughkeepsie? Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford and... Wait, there's nobody there. Uh, that's right, no Andy this week. As you, if you're a regular listener, have heard that Andy has been very under the weather. So he's finally got a date for his surgery. He's going to be in hospital for, let's hope, um, by the time you've heard this, he's going to be out uh, and let's hope that he's okay. So uh, I'm sure you're going to join me by wishing him all the best and a speedy recovery. And this is going to be really weird because I don't honestly think I've ever done the film file on my own. I don't think I've ever done it without Andy. I might be wrong and my adult brain just can't recall because of the terror of not doing a film file with Andy. And it's going to be weird because I think part of the reason the film file is... Um, is not only just a lot of fun to do, but is, has been successful, is the banter that the two of us have. And I know Andy's done a couple of shows while I've been away, but I, I think this is, I think this is my first time. Anyway, because Andy's not going to be around, we've decided uh, that it would be unfair to do a, a regular show, and I'd rather wait until Andy can come back and prepare you for what we normally do here on the film file, which is. As you know, our usual uh, banter and chat and film news and deep dives and uh, reviews and all that sort of shenanigans. But with no Andy, I think what we're going to do is, well, if you're a film fan, you'll have seen the sad passing of William Friedkin, a, a, a maverick director. Um, some might consider him an auteur, certainly a very, very influential director and we're going to talk a little bit about his life and his work and then we're going to run a deep dive of The Exorcist that we did uh, a few years ago. Uh, to be honest The Exorcist is one of those films that still unnerves me. It, it, it scared me to death when I when I first saw it, absolutely terrified me and I have a, a, have a hangover of watching that film that still affects me when I watch The Exorcist today. Uh, when we watched it for the deep dive I still find that it's not lost any of its edge 50 years on so no reviews, no news but we will have our deep dive of The Exorcist and hopefully next week things will be back to normal so I said fingers crossed Andy will be back with us so let's have a talk about William Friedkin because I think he's one of those directors that deserves our time and attention so Friedkin is responsible for many, many memorable films. Uh, not only The Exorcist, you've got to consider The French Connection, which is an, an absolute classic. One of my favourites, To Live and Die in L.A. The much underrated and, um, and well worth a second visit if you've not got back and watched it, his other horror film, The Guardian. But let's talk about the man and his life. He was born in Chicago in 1935 to a family that struggled, really struggled to make ends meet. After he graduated from high school, Friedkin replied to an advert posted by a local TV station to look for someone to work in their mailroom. Interestingly enough, on one of those happy accidents, he turned up at the wrong TV station and it turned out to be the best move that he ever made. He was hired by WGN and he fell under the auspicious eye of a writer and columnist who recognised the talent 
that he had. Freakin worked his way up through the station and ended up becoming a documentary filmmaker in his first film, The People vs. Paul Grump, in 1962, about a death row inmate that not only helped Crump win clemency, but it opened the door for Freakin's career. He then moved into television and with the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, which was in its last season, helped him jump into a number of TV series and TV movies. But it was in the cinema where Friedkin's talent shined. His first film was a Sonny and Cher film, Good Times in 1967, which flopped. But he went on to make a wide range of movies and a wide range of genres. The Boys in the Band, to The Night They Raided Minsky's, The Birthday Party. None of them made much of a success. But it was in 1971 when he directed The French Connection, starring Gene Hackman as Detective Popeye Doyle, the world took notice of Friedkin's challenges. It won him an Oscar amongst its hall of five. The movie also helped him become one of the leading lights of 1970s film directors. And this is where we'd moved out of the studio system and went into what was known as New Hollywood and became a highly recognised talent. But the film that was the most iconic and most influential was, of course, the Exorcist in 1973 and as we talk about in our deep dive a demonic possession movie that still resonates today because of the verisimilitude and the, the sense of realism that Freakin uses to tell the story after that was one of the director's personal favourites and much maligned which is Sorcerer which is a remake of the classic Wages of Fear and I rewatched this recently and it's a remarkable piece of filmmaking amazingly directed incredibly taught with a fantastic performance from Roy Schneider and this lost out in many ways because it opened up against Star Wars it just didn't find its audience sadly and was seen as one of those director follies and, and a lot of the directors from that time had those director follies you could say that with Spielberg with 1941 Francis Ford Coppola with One from the Heart Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate those cases where directors had become uh, incredibly influential, incredibly important, but had a series of, of, of disasters. Not necessarily bad films, but films that just didn't resonate with an audience. Uh, I think Sorcerer and Wages of Fear, for me, is his best film. And since then, it's become a cult hit. In the 1980s, Cruising with Al Pacino proved to be controversial, but he continued on with such films as... Rules of Engagement, Deal of the Century, and again, another favourite of mine, To Live and Die in L.A. He never enjoyed quite the success as he did with The Exorcist, but in the 2000s he came back with Bug and The Incredible Killing Joe, which I think was a turning point for Matthew McConaughey. He received an Emmy nomination for the small screen with his remake of Twelve Angry Men, and his most recent film, a remake of The Kane Mutiny, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, was accepted into this year's Venice Film Festival. He was a tough director to work with. He himself said that he burnt many, many bridges and he always strove for excellence. It's worth checking out the behind-the-scenes making of The Exorcist to see what kind of a director that he was. But as I said, incredibly influential and a sad loss to cinema. Anyway, here's our deep dive from a couple of years ago on The Exorcist. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. 
This week, we're going to be talking about the 1973 and a number which is significant to my friend and co-host Andy Meakin, as it was the year of his birth, because we're going to be talking about William Friedkin's horror classic, The Exorcist. Father Karras, it's an honor to meet you. I believe we should begin. I think it might be helpful if I gave you some background on the different personalities Reagan has manifested. So far, I'd say there seem to be three. She's convinced there is only one. Especially important is the warning to avoid conversations with the demon. We may ask what is relevant, but anything beyond that is dangerous. He will lie to confuse us, but he will also mix lies with the truth. The attack is psychological and powerful. The Exorcist. Based on the 1971 novel by William Peter Blatty, who wrote the screenplay. The film stars Ellen Burstein, Max von Sydow, Lee J. Cobb, Jason Miller, and Linda Blair. It follows the story of a young girl and a demonic possession, and her mother's attempt to rescue her through an exorcism conducted by two Catholic priests. The book was an international bestseller, and the film has been reviled as one of the greatest horror films of all time. In fact, film critic Mark Commode, to him, it's the best film of all time. It's a film that, even with mixed reviews, found an audience, and this is one of those films that everybody was talking about. It became the first horror film to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture, and it was nominated and won for Best Adapted Screenplay and Sound. It's had several sequels, and it's the highest grossing R-rated horror film until 2017's release of It. The Exorcist is part of popular culture, and it's a film that, when I first saw it, frightened me to death. So much so that it took me at least 10 years to be able to watch it again. And Andy, it did come out on a more happier note in the year of your birth. Yeah, it's a, it's a great film to share my year of birth with. However, there was a period in my life where I didn't think it was a great film. My first experience of watching this, I must have been about 19 during my student days. And the local flea pit cinema in town ran a special one-off midnight screening of it. And I'd heard for years, I knew of moments of this film. I'd heard it so much said about it, how it's the scariest film ever made and so on and so forth. And so I'm sat in a crowded theatre in anticipation of finally getting round to watch this much heralded horror film. And by the time the end credits rolled, I, I wondered whether there was two films named The Exorcist and I'd chosen the wrong one because it did nothing for me on that first viewing. It left me feeling a little flat, to be honest. And so it then took me about two decades before I finally decided to give it a second shot. And it became one of the films that has become my reason why you should always give something another chance. Because I'd clearly had it overhyped for me when I first went to see it. And I was expecting a horror that would sit alongside the modern horrors of the era, like your Nightmare on Elm Street series, etc. But it wasn't that at all. It was a completely different thing to what people were telling me it should be. So when I rewatched it again, man, I came away from it understanding the love that people have for it. It still didn't feel like a perfect film for me, but I understood more about why it was highly regarded, the impact that it had at the era that it came out. If you're deeply religious, the aspects of the story will no doubt terrify and shock you, and why it became so, so influential in the whole genre of horror that followed for decades to come. And then this week, 
I've watched the extended version. To which, Andy, as we were talking about this week's show in advance, I didn't know there was an extended version. It's interesting that you point out that this film didn't hit you at first. And I think a lot of modern audiences uh, have felt the same. They've gone into The Exorcist feeling that though it's it's got this huge reputation and, and it is a film which is a, a slow burn, that a lot doesn't happen. It's more of a, a drip feed of horrific elements, but a lot doesn't happen until sort of the last act when it becomes iconic. But that's not to say that it's a dull film. It just works horror in a very, very meticulous way. It deals with the minutia of character development and the horrors that these two women, or a woman and a girl, are going through, and that's Ellen Burstein and uh, Linda Blair. And as we found out more about their relationships and how that relationship is broken down. And as I said, this film hit me hard. I saw it, I, I think I saw it a little bit too young. I think I was about 15 or 16. And and I and of everything that Linda Blair went through, I was scared because I thought this is just an innocent little girl. And I've done things that mm. normal kids do. Could, could this happen to me? And that element sat inside my brain and terrified me throughout this film. So much so that I didn't watch it for an awful long time. But I do get that modern audiences have found this a harder watch based on the fact that it's it, it's, it's almost a legend of a film and then find yeah. that it's not the kind of horror film that they, they've, they've come to expect. Now, like you say, it's a very slow burn and it's a character study and it's very much a character study of people around the issue of faith. You've got Ellen Bernstein's character states at a couple of points that she's not religious. She has no faith. She doesn't see this as a possession to start with. It's just an illness. And the doctors as well agree with her, this psychological condition, etc. So it's hard for her to come to terms with the fact that her child has got a demonic presence. Then you've got two priests, a younger one and an older one. One of them who's struggling with faith after the loss of his mother. And the other one who's who's close to dying and is starting to question his own faith and his own experiences. And it's all about this experience convincing each of them to some degree that their faith needs to be placed in the right place. And it's slow paced and there's loads of dialogue. The dialogue is so well scripted and it's so natural and flowing. And it's because it's so slow burner and because it's so subtle in the way that it does it. There's no giant explosions. There's no big like ooh ah that when Reagan has a quick split second outburst of obscenities, it shocks because here's what should be an innocent 12-year-old girl suddenly speaking in a strange, guttural, demonic voice with laying of other sounds on it. And then it just quickly goes back to just talking and dialogue again. So it catches you off guard. It throws you. You jump. You're startled by it. You're shocked by it. And then swiftly you're having to concentrate on the dialogue exchanges again. And it plays with you for that first two acts. It plays with you in this way before it finally gets to the now iconic exorcism scene itself. And that's when it becomes more about the horror, more about the terror, more about the turning heads and scratching skins. Uh, and, and part of that reason that it's got a, a very realistic approach in the way that it's directed. It's directed by William Friedkin, who was hot off the back of The French Connection. Even though he wasn't the first choice, Warner's uh, had initially approached Arthur Penn. Uh, Mike Nichols and even Stanley Kubrick to direct. They finally settled on Mark Rydell, but Blatty insisted on Freaking, who had been impressed by the French connection. He also knew that uh, Freaking, who had critiqued his Darling Lily screenplay once over lunch, would get the documentary realism to an incredible story. And he knew that he was going. there was going to be an honesty about it. 
And and that's what works. It's a no-nonsense looking film. In fact, one director who had been uh, eyed for the role wanted to set the whole film in Salem, Massachusetts. But it's the fact that we recognize this world and it's that that horror that comes out of looking out of your window and seeing everyday life and that the supernatural exists within a, a modern New York. Freakin's approach to direction did cause some clashes on set. I mean, we know that from reports that he clashed with Jason Miller a few times, once when the vomit tubing misfired and sprayed Miller in the face as opposed to the chest where it should have gone. And that shot remained in as the shock and disgust was authentic. And there was another time when Friedkin fired a gun near to Miller's ear to get an authentic reaction. And Miller angrily exclaimed that he was an actor and didn't need a gun in order to act. But also the set itself, in order to capture the chills, literally, and make it look like you you could see the breath coming from their mouths. It was a cold box. So they were filming in sub-zero conditions inside this set. Linda Blair's screaming when the bed was getting bounced around was genuine because she was completely caught off guard by most of it. William O'Malley recalled that William Friedkin slapped him prior to shooting on the final scene and causing his hand to tremble while blessing Father Karras. And Ellen Bernstein mentions that her scream and facial reaction after being slapped by Regan were due to the harness pulling her far too hard. Basically, your cast suffered for what you see on screen, and it works. It works so well as a result because every response, this is similar to like how in Alien, some of the responses were real because no one knew what was actually going to happen. This is that kind of filmmaking. Freaking might have rubbed some people up the wrong way, but his artistic decisions clearly paid off on the final film. Uh, it's a great cast, as, as we've mentioned earlier. Ellen Bernstein, who again, wasn't the original choice. Jane Fonda was considered for it, but she didn't like the material. Audrey Hepburn said she'd take the role if the film could have been shot in Rome. And Bancroft was up for the part, but she was uh, pregnant and the production couldn't wait for nine months. And ultimately, Ellen Bernstein, who gives a fantastic performance, was cast. For the male leads, the studio wanted big name stars. Marlon Brando was suggested, as was uh, Jack Nicholson. Initially, Blatty hired Stacey Keach, but they decided to go for non-A-listers and went with the unknown Jason Miller who had been talked about after a performance of his play, The Championship Season, and also the great Max von Sydow. Over the years, this film built up a reputation. It built up, it built up a legacy, not only with a wave of ever-declining sequels of itself, but also it inspired, well, it inspired the horror genre to be taken with a bit more credibility, which resulted in films such as films that we love, like The Omen, getting made. The Omen would never have been made were it not for this film set in the marker. And it's been parodied, and it's been spoken about, it's been discussed, it's been documentaried. And one of the things about the film itself that was documentaried for so long was the cut scenes. This was one of the first films that people got obsessed over scenes that we never saw. And in this case, it was the spider walk down the stairs scene that had kind of become almost a legend. Did it exist? Did it not? And we got to see it for ourselves in a rejig of the film in the year 2000. So, yes, I, as I said, I didn't know this film existed, but you managed to catch it the other day. I knew there was a director's cut, which had got the infamous spider war scene in, uh, which came out uh, and did a cinema run, but I didn't know there was... Uh... It's referred to as the version you've never seen. The Exorcist, the version you've never seen, adds approximately 12 minutes more footage back into the film. Some alternate scenes, some alternate takes... 
It takes a few of the other scenes out the way. And it, as well as the inclusion of the infamous spider walk, which is very sudden, it just comes out of nowhere. And again, another one of those like talking, 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 shock, talking, talking, talking kind of approaches. It also rejigs some of the sound because the sound mix on its original release didn't, you know, there was no such thing as 5-1 and 7-1 stereo, stereoscopic surround sound back then in cinemas. So it's got a rejig sound, including layering in some more sound effects. The small touches of CGI work done on some of the effects work to make it cleaner, almost unnoticeable. But there's just little sparks every now and then that you go, oh, that's new. Oh, that's new. And for me, I think it make, helps the film play better. It helps the film stand up in a, for a more modern audience. You said earlier on that modern audiences, when comparing this yeah. to a more modern horror, it doesn't quite live up to what your expectations are. I think this version is the one for modern audiences. And this is the one that has turned it into a five-star film for me because I got to explore it. I got to appreciate it without being thrown out of it by some old effects that don't work. Everything in this is cleaned up. Everything is given a new remix the sound, the music is like cleaner, crisper, sharper. And it was a great watch. I was absolutely engrossed with it again. And I can't wait to revisit this film again and again and again now. This is a film that I hated on first watch that now has become one of my favourite films of all time. That is the power of a good film that can turn you round when you're in the right frame of mind to actually appreciate what's going on. I mean, this is a film that's got a legacy. This is a film that uh, again, and I, I put it down to the sort of the realistic nature of it. It's almost the, and it's been said previously that it did for horror, which 2001 did for science fiction. It legitimized it in the eyes of audiences who previously considered horror movies to be nothing more than a few scares and, and a bit of a laugh. Mm. Uh, and it paved the way around that time for movies like The Omen and Burnt Offerings and Audrey Rose and The Amityville Horror. And uh, and even, to some extent, I would have to say, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Of course, the film, because it was such a huge international success, meant that there had to be a sequel. And we got, several years later, The Exorcist to The Heretic, which is best avoided at any cost. Directed by John Borman, Blatty uh, was still in court with the studio over money owed in addition to the 20 million he'd reportedly already received and uh, was dissatisfied with the share of profit only agreed to produce. Linda Blair returned. Uh, John Borman, who had turned down the original as negative and destructive, directed and considered the sequel to be a healthy comparison and cast Richard Burton in the lead role. It's a bit of a mess of a film. Uh, doesn't know what it wants to do. It was cut uh, and then recut and then came out as being one of the most horrible films that I think you'll have a chance to see. Over the past decade, we had that decent but short-lived TV series. Very good show. Managed two seasons but never found its audience, which was a shame because it was doing a really good retelling of the story and giving its own feel and own reason. And this year, in October, Blumhouse and David Gordon Green are bringing a new direct legacy sequel to the film, with Bernstein reprising her role from that first film. I'm intrigued with this. I'm hoping it can deliver on the legacy sequel kind of effect. But one thing for certain is that even if it does turn out to be a stinker, it won't damage the original film from being the excellent, powerful, and really shockingly hard-hitting film that it still is today. I also got to point out that what you must get to see, especially if you can get the uh, director's cut, is The Incredible, The Exorcist 3, which is uh, was originally known as Legion, based on a novel by William Peter Blatty. 
It's not really an Exorcist sequel, though it was something that the studio insisted, but it is one fantastic and horrific film and well worth seeing. I point out that there is a recut director's version, but a lot of the scenes are taken from substandard copies, but it is in its own right, well worth seeing. Interesting and worth seeing in their own right are The Exorcist, The Beginning and Dominion. Exactly the same film by two different directors, which is worth the time just to discuss at some other point, because what went off there is an incredibly strange moment in film history. But as Andy said, you cannot take away that this is an all-time, absolutely all-time classic horror movie. So that's it for this week, a shortened show. We should be back next week with our usual tomfoolery and film nonsense that we can only deliver right here on The Film File. No neat things other than wishing Andy a speedy recovery and hope you get well soon, mate. If you've not already subscribed to The Film File, please do so, and you can do that via your favourite podcast platform. And remember... I've taken four falls, I've never rattled on anybody in my life, and I've had plenty of chances. Believe me. (laughs) 